I want to call your attention now to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, from which we read a few moments ago, Hebrews chapter 6. And we'll read again the ninth verse, Hebrews 6, 9. But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. In the context of this verse, we see this description in verses uh, 4 and 5 of how much of a taste of religion that a person may have and still remain lost. The description here is of the one that we call the apostate. The writer to the Hebrews here is concerned that his readers do not follow that sad pattern. And so he says, this has been the experience of some. They have gone as far into a profession of Christianity as it is possible to go without being truly saved. And then, because of persecution and fear and danger for their lives, they walked away. They fell away, verse 6. And they're in a very sad, deplorable condition. It says it's impossible to renew them again unto repentance. Verse 6. But the writer here is encouraged about those to whom he's writing. He says, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation. And he doesn't elaborate on that in much detail as far as the things that accompany salvation. You might expect him to have this long list of items, but he mentions ministering one to another there in verse 10. And faithfulness in labor for the Lord. And I want to focus especially on this phrase, things that accompany salvation. The word of God consistently uh, insists that those who have Christ's righteousness are those who also, as a result, come to have certain peculiar qualities about them, and this in a way follows up some of what we considered about faith. We're justified by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. Faith is living, and it works, and it moves, and it acts, and it works by love, as Paul says to the Galatians. There are things that necessarily inevitably, invariably accompany salvation. And the, the term accompany here 
indicates that these are things that pertain to salvation, that are closely joined to salvation, that have to do with salvation. And these things that accompany salvation are fruits and evidences of it. And the Word of God frequently mentions these kinds of things. In the Sermon on the Mount, this is the great uh, emphasis of the Lord Jesus Christ. In, in a way, that's, that's the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. That's, that's the summary of it. He doesn't lay out so much in that sermon how to become a Christian, but what the Christian life looks like in practical terms. What are the things, in other words, that accompany salvation? Coming down to the end of that sermon, Jesus asks this question of his disciples, what do ye more than others? Well, look at the Pharisees. They're busy and they're trying to to do all these outwardly good things to quiet their conscience, to make others uh, look at them and admire them and so on. And he says, if you're my disciples, you've got to do more than they do. There must be something beyond that, something that is more profound and and something that is genuine. What do ye more than others? And his point is not that our doing more than others is what makes us a Christian. But doing more than others manifests us to be Christians. As we said earlier, it's all a matter of of cause and effect, and we must never confuse those things. Now, what are the things that accompany salvation? Well, we might begin to formulate in our minds a a list of, of things set forth in the Word of God that a Christian should do and, and that a Christian should be and, and that a Christian should experience. And we'll make a, a small attempt at that here in a moment. But as we look at some of these things that are evidences or that are things that accompany salvation we recognize immediately that there are some that are inconclusive. There are some that may or may not indicate a true state of grace in the soul. There are marks that may or may not indicate that a person is a Christian. On the other hand, there are things that most certainly accompany salvation, that are conclusive evidence of salvation, that only God's blood-bought children have, that only God's redeemed ones experience and manifest. Let me give a simple illustration. We might say, how can you know that Something you are observing is a person, is a human being. How can you know this is a man? You say, well, for one thing, it looks like a man. Have you ever been to a wax museum and seen carved wax that looks like a man and and some good artists can make it so realistic that, that it would almost pass for the real thing? It looks like a man. 
Is it a man? No, it's a, it's a piece of wax. Well, it has arms and legs. Chairs have arms and legs. A chair is not a man. So the fact that it has arms and legs neither proves nor disproves. That's inconclusive evidence, you see. But it breathes. Well, dogs and vacuum cleaners breathe. And so we must understand there are some things that are inconclusive evidences of something. On the other hand, there are things that are conclusive as evidence. What are, to follow this illustration out, what are the peculiar qualities that only a person, a man, a human being has? Well, he's made in the image of God. Is this thing you're looking at made in the image of God? If it is, then it's a man. Does he have a capacity to know his creator and to relate to him personally and intelligently? Is he a rational soul? If so, then that's conclusive evidence that you're looking at a man. It's a real person, not just a wax figure or a chair or a vacuum cleaner. And similarly, there are characteristics that only believers have. And there are characteristics that both unbelievers and believers may have. And we want to look at some of each of these and, uh, by God's grace, search our own hearts today. And I'll confess here at the outset that I'm standing on the shoulders of Gardner Spring. Gardner Spring, I think, was standing on the shoulders of Jonathan Edwards. And Edwards was standing on someone else's shoulders, maybe the Apostle Paul's. And uh, certainly the Apostle Paul stood on the shoulders of our Lord Jesus himself. Let me mention then some inconclusive marks. Things that accompany salvation that are not conclusive in themselves. And I'll I'll mention several and I'll have to mention them briefly. Uh, Each one of these could be enlarged upon and maybe a whole sermon preached upon. But uh, first is outward morality. Well, does outward morality accompany salvation? Well, it certainly does. But there are those who are not Christians who also have outward morality. Not every decent, hardworking, loving, honest person is a Christian. The common grace of God makes some people to be sweet and loving and kind and so on. All you have to do is find a gentle, friendly, honest atheist, and you've proven the point. 
Secondly, knowledge of the Bible. Understanding or and even being able to repeat the facts of the gospel. Paul tells Timothy about those who are ever learning. Oh, and they're learning and learning and learning. They keep adding to their knowledge. They may become experts on the literature of Holy Scripture. They win the Bible trivia game every time. They're ever learning and usually ever talking. I suppose that Satan himself has a good knowledge of the Bible. Remember, he quoted Scripture to Christ when he tempted him to sin. Being able to quote Scripture is not a conclusive evidence of salvation. I'm afraid that in the lake of fire, there will be no lack of theology, no lack of a basic concept of the facts of the gospel. It isn't just, do you know the truth? It is, has the truth come to bear in your soul? Has it changed you? Thirdly, another uh, inconclusive mark is observance of religious rituals. In the Old Testament, Cain brought an offering to God just before he murdered his brother. He's in the middle of a religious exercise while he has hatred in his heart swelling up. A person can observe religious rituals. A person may even be baptized and remain unconverted. A person may take the Lord's Supper and remain unconverted. A person may attend church faithfully. And, and I mean, shouldn't a Christian be baptized and be faithful in church and take the Lord's Supper and so on? Absolutely. But those things are not absolute proof of a right standing with God. A person can engage in these things as purely outward formalities. You can sit in a pew on Sunday morning at 11 o'clock and your mind be a, a thousand miles away. We see the Pharisee praying in the temple Oh, he's, he's observing his prayer time. Jesus, again, in the Sermon on the Mount, describes the Pharisees as those who loved to pray, but they loved to pray standing on the street corners and calling attention to themselves and making sure that everybody could hear their prayers and so on. Fourthly is giftedness. Some have gifts of perhaps singing or praying or preaching even. Remember in the Old Testament, a prophet named Balaam, he's a false prophet. Oh, he was gifted. And some of his prophecies were tremendous prophecies. And yet he is clearly an unregenerate man. Our Lord, to refer once again to that Sermon on the Mount, 
reminds us that not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, shouldn't a person say that Jesus is Lord? Yes, indeed. But not everyone who calls him Lord will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils. And in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. All of these outward works and and exercise of gifts of various kinds and so on was viewed by the Lord as nothing but working iniquity. Not wrought in faith and for the glory of God and from a regenerate heart. I wonder how many on Judgment Day will say, Lord, I spoke in tongues, and so that's a, that's a proof that I was saved. That's what they're taught today. If, as long as you speak in tongues, that's the, that's the absolute proof. Does it ever occur to people that an unregenerate person may learn to say gibberish? Making unintelligible sounds and calling it the gift of tongues is in no way proof of salvation. Fifthly, sorrow over sin. Paul tells the Corinthians that there is a kind of sorrow that is not unto repentance from sin, It's just the sorrow of the world. And he said, instead of leading to repentance, it leads to death. Pharaoh seems to have been sorry for some of his sin. And he confessed not once, but twice. I have sinned, he says to Moses. King Ahab, such a wicked idolater, humbled himself for a while. Before Jehovah. In the New Testament, Felix trembled as Paul preached. Felix was gripped by the, the, the sound of the truth for a while and remained lost nonetheless. We might expand this point of sorrow over sin to include all kinds of deep emotion. You can see people on their knees in front of a crucifix and tears streaming down their face. There's clearly some deep emotion going on within them. And yet they know nothing of the gospel of Christ and even the way of salvation You may have a deep emotional stirring in church or when you hear the word of God or when you see a beautiful sunset. But that's not absolute proof of true salvation. You know, those prophets of Baal, 
uh, on Mount Carmel, why they had some very deep emotions going on, but it was all in vain. Sixthly, the time of supposed conversion is an inconclusive mark. The time of supposed conversion. There are many people who can tell you the hour of the day, of the month, of the year that they professed faith in Christ. I remember years ago as a young boy hearing one fellow, he even included the direction that he was facing as if that had some significance. I was facing west. So I've got my spiritual birth certificate. I can show you. You can look it up in the church records. I'm on the books. I suppose that Judas Iscariot could tell you exactly the hour and the day and the month and the year and maybe the direction he was facing when he first was called to be a disciple by Jesus. He even went on to follow Christ for some years and even to preach and cast out demons and all the things that the true disciples did. He is certainly one who will say in that day, Have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and thy name done many wonderful works? So, knowing the time of your supposed conversion is not a conclusive mark of salvation. And number seven, last in this list, is strong assurance of salvation. And we're on very delicate ground here. There is such a thing as assurance of salvation, and it's a wonderful thing. Thank God for assurance of salvation when it is true, when it is legitimate. But there is such a thing as false assurance also. And what some call assurance is only false presumption. And it's closely connected usually with the previous point. Well, I have assurance of salvation. I, I drove a stake in the ground in my yard to remind me so I would never forget, so there would never be any doubt about it. And so often, that kind of assurance is simply self-confidence. It's convincing oneself that he is convinced. False assurance is usually based on some human action, like going to the front of a building at the end of a service, saying a prayer that someone taught you to pray, maybe signing a card of commitment. And so a strong assurance of salvation must not be mistaken for salvation itself. In summarizing thus far, we live in a day and time in which the whole concept of a false profession of faith seems to be denied. It's as if everyone who says, I'm a Christian, is. And everyone who prays what's called the sinner's prayer is of necessity 
a true Christian. Every profession is valid by default. But again and again in the word of God, we are warned against that kind of thing from the parable of the sower and the stony ground and the thorny ground to the description of the apostate here in Hebrews chapter 6 and on and on. We see that there can be such a thing as a false profession and temporary faith, if you will, who for a while believe, Jesus said, But that's not saving faith. It's not the faith of God's elect that gives these sure evidences and conclusive marks and things that accompany salvation only. And so we move to that part now. And I suppose this list could go on and on, but I'll mention as quickly as I can about ten things. Number one is love to God. Love to God. And that means that your heart has been renewed. It has been transformed from death unto life. And now there's life toward God. And that heart is drawn to Him. There is adoration of Him, appreciation of Him. Like the deer that that pants after the water. So my soul pants after thee, O God, says the psalmist. All things work together for good to them that love God. This is, the, in, in a sense, the most essential, conclusive mark. And though none of us loves him like we should... And loves him like we would. Yet we can honestly say with Peter, Lord, you know that I love you. And our love to him is real and it's growing. And secondly, we ought to mention, maybe in even a more basic way, the the grace of repentance And then thirdly, the grace of faith. Repentance is turning away from sin. And turning away not just from one or two big sins, it's turning away from all of our sin. And it's turning away from all of our sin because it is displeasing to God. Because it's an offense against Him. It's not just that it hurts me or it hurts my friends. It offends God. And repentance is turning from all sin because it is displeasing to God in such a way as never to return to it again. And that's Hebrews 6. It's not just that we're afraid of going to hell. It's that we understand that we have offended a holy God. And we don't make excuses for our sins. And we don't say, but you know, mine wasn't as bad as somebody else's and so on. No, true repentance is the, the spirit of David. He says, Lord, I've only sinned against you. You're the one I've sinned against first and foremost. And I have no defense. I have no plea. 
I'm filthy and dirty. Wash me. Cleanse me. Change me. Forgive me. Transform me. In true repentance, you come to think like God thinks about your own case. In repentance, you take God's side in his argument against you. You agree with him and you plead nothing but guilty as you plead the merits of Christ to cover your sin. That brings us to faith in Christ. This is a certain and conclusive mark of salvation is to be trusting in Christ. Whoever believes on him is saved. The scripture says that over and over again. Christ is the object of our trust. That is true only of a Christian. And sometimes you have to say a true Christian. There's so much false profession and nominal religion. There's none other to whom we can turn. Lord, to whom shall we go? Asks Peter. We're not trusting in ourselves. We're not trusting in our prayers, our good deeds. We're not even trusting in our trust. We're trusting in Christ. We're not trusting in a church, not trusting in a priest, at least an earthly priest. There's only one priest, and that's Christ himself. This is true only of those who have true religion. Well, quickly, fourthly, Christ-like humility and self-denial. Jesus said, if a man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. We recognize that we are nothing, that we are debtors to his grace alone. And that knocks the props out from under all of our pride. And though we are not as humble as we ought to be, and our own sinful pride keeps asserting itself and still kicking, as it were, nevertheless, The dominant direction is Christ-like humility. Fifthly, willing and joyful submission to the Lordship of Christ. Though we continue to struggle with sin, every one of us, until we go to be with the Lord, until we die or until He comes again, nevertheless, The whole direction of our life is in submission to him who is both Savior and Lord. The disposition of a true Christian is manifested in Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus when down on his knees, blinded by the presence of Christ, he says, Lord, What wilt thou have me to do? And that, I say, is the first indication that a work of grace had been done 
in old persecuting Saul of Tarsus. He wanted to know God's will. Tell me what to do. The implication there is, it means everything, and that is he not only wants to know, but he wants to know so that he may follow him. Number six, a desire for and devotion to the glory of God. And this ties in with what we said earlier about self-denial. We're no longer out to make a name for ourselves. We want God's name to be exalted. We desire his glory. We say with John the Baptist, he must increase, I must decrease. He is worthy of praise. He is worthy of honor and fame. And that becomes the unifying purpose of all of our life. To glorify him, to point to him, to bring glory and honor and praise to him. Number seven is prayer. Again, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus exposes the the false kind of praying. But a true believer, a true Christian, is given to prayer. The ungodly are described in the book of Job as those who do not always call upon God. What that means is those who are godly always call upon him. We pray in that sense without ceasing. We never give up praying. Praying becomes a part of our life. Because we are children of God, He has sent His Spirit into us. And that makes us to cry out, Abba, Father. And we don't just talk about prayer. And we don't just make prayer requests. But we know what it is to pray. And none of us prays like we should. None of us prays like we would. But we must know something of prayer. Number eight, brotherly love. Jesus mentions this as, as the great distinguishing characteristic that those in the world will notice. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. And it's emphasized throughout the first epistle of John. If you can't love your brother whom you can see, how can you love God whom you cannot see? He says, the bond that ties us to Christ also ties us to others who are also bound to Christ. Love for the brethren. And this love comes to its most practical manifestation and is put to the most acid test in the local assembly. You know, in a way, it's easy to say, oh, I love the Christians in Africa and love the Christians in China and everything. The old saying goes, To dwell above with the saints we love, that will be glory. To dwell below with the saints we know is another story. Well, God help us if that's true. 
let us, beloved, care for and pray for and help and show concern and compassion and serve one another. Knowing that in so doing, we're serving Christ himself. That's what he told us in the Gospel of Matthew. Number nine, separation from sin. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. James tells us that True religion is to keep yourself unspotted from the world. And I tell you, in the part of this world where God providentially has put us, we desperately need to let observers know that true salvation makes a radical difference in how we live. There is a lot of professing Christianity that has people showing up in church on Sunday and then on Monday out getting drunk and fornicating, etc. We observe these things and it's a grief to us. There is a true separation from sin that must be true and that is a distinguishing mark of true grace by God's grace there is an overcoming of the world there is a spiritual mind as Romans 8 puts it if the ungodly love pleasures more than they love God then the godly love God more than they love pleasures and including the sinful pleasures of this world without holiness no man will see the Lord Hebrews tells us. Number 10, growth in grace. Peter admonishes us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Practical obedience. And this sort of becomes the the catch-all for everything that might be included if this list went on and on. Hereby do we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments, and I've said very little about the first epistle of John here in this message, but if you're not familiar with first John, I encourage you to read it, become familiar with it and see how that over and over again, he gives us these things that accompany salvation, marks of grace. He that is born of God overcomes the world. By this, we know that we know him when we keep his commandments and so on. He says it here, hereby do we know that we know him. How can we have assurance? How can we know that we're a Christian if we keep his commandments? He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Not that our keeping of his commandments makes us a Christian, but being a Christian makes us keep his commandments. There's perseverance, steadfastness, faithfulness, and growth in grace. This is a conclusive evidence of salvation. These are the things then that accompany salvation. None of them in perfection. 
but the root of the matter must be in us and moving in the right direction. Now, before we close, we have to say even this. We began with the list of marks that are inconclusive, that the lost and the saved alike often share in common. And we've endeavored to set forth, on the other hand, something of a, at least a beginning of a list of, of what are true evidences and marks of saving grace. But we have to say this, even for the items on this side, there are plenty of counterfeits. There can be a counterfeit of love to God and a counterfeit repentance and faith and humility and and on down the list. And so where we leave it here today is we must make sure that we have the genuine article and not a counterfeit. Let me give you the same point in the words of Mr. Gardner Spring who lived from 1785 to 1873, he said, there is a love, a repentance, a faith, a hope, a joy, a self-denial, which are of mere human origin and spurious. The religious affections of many men are founded in supreme selfishness. Let that sink in and let us examine our own hearts, all of us here today. Listen to it again. The religious affections of many men are founded in supreme selfishness. And then he explains, they are willing to love and serve God just so far as they believe he is willing to love and serve them and no further. The religion of such men consists in being very anxious about their own welfare, but very little concerned for the honor and glory of God. End quote. Well, let us be honest with God and honest with our own consciences today. Do you have conclusive, genuine marks of grace? If so, thank God and press on. If not, then don't be content with these inconclusive marks. But rather, seek the Lord now. Seek his mercy and grace, perhaps for the first time, truly. And seeking him, you will find him. And oh, how you will rejoice when you find him. How we will rejoice with you when you find him. In Christ is full salvation. And in Christ are all the things that accompany salvation as well. And so I urge you to come to him and believe on him. Find life in him. Find full redemption in him and come now, not tomorrow, 
Not next week. Now. Now. Right where you are. I don't need to get you to come to the front of the building. Come to Him in your heart now. Right where you sit. Casting aside all hope in yourself. Putting all of your confidence and trust in Christ. And by His grace, He will see to it that the things that accompany salvation begin to be manifested in your life.